Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in Engrave.io shop with the code RealVision. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. David, welcome to my life in four trades. Looking forward to the next hour, Maggie. It's it's fun to have you in person. We do a lot of these virtually. So, True. Um, so the nature of this is we talk about two of your best trades, two of your worst trades. They're not your only good trades and your only bad trades, but they're just two that are kind of important or significant in some way. But before we dive into them, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Oh, okay. Well, I, I grew up in Ottawa, which is uh, the uh, capital city of uh, Canada, and uh what was I as a kid? You're going to be shocked when I tell you, but I was, uh, I was shy. I was a real shy I am kid. going to be shocked by that. Yeah. Because we just left an a, a auditorium where you were holding court. You were really I, shy. I was, uh, I, I, was a, uh, I was a shy kid uh, up until I was uh, probably a young teenager. And I was also was a very poor student. I hated school. That's even I, more shocking. I, I love going to the hockey rink. And playing hockey, and I came from a scholastic family. Uh, my mother was a kindergarten teacher. Uh, my dad worked; he was had his master's degree in civil engineering. And uh, when he wasn't uh, working for the uh, federal government, he was teaching at the University of Ottawa. Uh, I got uh, two older sisters. One's a nurse and a teacher. One's uh, uh, head of uh, education at a high school. Uh, and my brother taught at the University of Tel Aviv. He was professor there. So I come from this family of, uh, of, of, of pedagogues, and uh, I was the black sheep of the family. And in fact, I remember when I was in grade nine, um, I got my, my final grade was uh, 64%. It was like a C minus. And uh, I remember I was the youngest of four kids, the Rosenbergs that went to Hillcrest High School. And uh, Mr. Hayes, the homeroom teacher said to me, are you sure you're a Rosenberg? <laughs> What happened but, to you? But what happened was that um, I ended up having an English teacher, taught English and history in grade 10. And I don't know what it was about him. It made me it made me think a lot later in life, even to the day, the importance of communication. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I went to school, it was like, uh, you know, remember Charlie Brown's uh, uh, um, school teacher? Wah, 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 wah. That, that's what it was all to me. But so anyway, this guy, Mr. Hyba, uh, I was so jazz- I was never jazzed up to go to school. I was at this point 15 years old, wow. and but he he spoke in a language that I understood, and I got very excited about school. Because if you're not excited about something, if you're not enthused, you know I was more enthused about hockey. So it wasn't capacity. Uh, it was your. It was you were not interested. I was just not interested in school, and uh, it was a big disappointment to, to my parents because education was like that was that was number one number one commandment. And that can feed, that sense of disappointment can feed on itself then. And well, then you lose it, even more interest. Because but then it, it moved in the opposite uh, direction. So the downward spiral started spiraling upwards and I started getting jazzed up about school. Of course but, not. Uh, but, you still uh, had to be. Especially my hockey buddies. You just had to whose, whose, whose marks were worse than mine. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, I was, uh, I was a shy kid. I was, uh, I was uh, a slow learner. Uh, and... Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, you look at me today and all I can say is that, you know, what you see isn't always what you get. Yeah, or how you start out Yeah, often. So did you, once you re-engaged with school, did you have an interest in finance or economics? Was that something that, it sounds like you came from educators, so it doesn't sound like right. it was necessarily the family business. No, but what's interesting is that um, in uh, I took economics in grade 11. And uh, remember the... Teacher's name, Mr. Mr. Dillabo. 
So I come home and my dad says to me, so how was uh, your course in economics? This is high school. So uh, uh, I said, uh, yeah, dad, you know, we, we, we learned this Keynesian model uh, where the assumption is that we're a closed economy with no government. My dad looks at me incredulously and says, no government? Come here, son. And he shows me his paycheck. And he says, you see this, 50% of my paycheck? He says, yeah, that goes to the government. He says, maybe you should take something a little more practical. So the next day, I dropped economics, <laughs> only to retake it in, in university. And there's a story about that, too. Uh, but, um, yeah, I took economics in grade 11, took it for one day, and then dropped it, only to then become an economist. So how did you get back on the track to become an economist? <laughs> okay. So uh, in, 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 the, in the name of uh, full disclosure, I actually started at University of Toronto in 1979 and I enrolled in the Bachelor of Commerce um, department. So I want to be an accountant. Don't ask me why, uh, because as I found out later in life that uh, you know, economists are accountants, but with better personalities. Uh, so I'm taking uh, accounting and uh, it's already December. It's like halfway through the first, uh, the first semester. And, 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 and I'm doing well in everything except one course. Uh, the one course that you'd want to actually do well in if you want to be an accountant, which was financial accounting. So like I'm, <laughs> danger, I'm, danger. I, I'm failing miserably. And, and I can't, for whatever reason, in the midterms, I, I can't get the T accounts to balance. No matter how I try, I can't get them to balance. So um, I go to my professor. And at th in those days... Um, uh, it was the accountants that worked at the big accounting firms were the lecturers in first year. And I'm doing well, managerial accounting, fine, you know, uh, uh, computer science, fine, you know, calculus, not a problem. But I couldn't balance the books. So I go to uh, Mr. Lee. Gary Lee was his name. How do you like that? I, I can, you remember all of them. I, I, can't, I can't remember my last bad forecast, but old professor's <laughs> names, those I remember really well. So I say, so I have a meeting with Mr. Lee, and I say, Mr. Lee, like, what's what's... What's the matter with me? He says, whatever it is, he says, you've got a mental block. You can't, you can't, you, 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 you can't balance your T accounts, Dave. You've got a mental block. I said, well, what, do you, what do you tell your students who can't balance the books? He says, oh, I tell them to go in economics. So, so that's what I did. <laughs> it's not saying a lot for the field of economics, is it? <laughs> no, it's actually, that's why when you see, uh, you know, the, the, the worst Finance ministers or treasury secretaries are people who actually have an economics degree. Right, we need to get an like, accountant in there. Like, like, tell me, is Janet Yellen bouncing the books? I don't think so. Not, so, not these days. And she's, an, and she's, she's an economist. So there you go. We, uh, we don't do a good job uh, of bouncing the books, uh, but we do a very good job at confusing people. <laughs> That's what I do well. So how did you make your way into working in finance? Did you, upon graduating, say, I want to head toward banking or I want, did you even know or was it just that you kind of stumbled into it? I stumbled into it for the most part. So I graduated with my, with my master's degree from the University of Toronto. Uh, so like when I go to the States and I said, I graduated from U of T, they say, oh, I didn't know you went to University of Texas. No, no, <laughs> Univers University of Toronto, sorry. That happens all the time it, to Canadians, yeah. doesn't it, when they're working so, in the US. So, uh, yeah, so I, I, I actually had my degree in, um, uh, my, my, my specialty was international economics. Um, but I graduated in the early 80s, and uh, there was not a lot of jobs in that field. And actually, we're, we're coming out of the horrible recession of the, uh, of the early 80s. But I, um, I was a teaching assistant for um, the housing and real estate economics course. It was a very specialized course. And uh, the professor, thankfully, really liked me. And I was also a teaching assistant for that course when I was doing my, uh, my graduate work. So he put a good word in for me. And uh, the federal government, uh, this was back in 1984, was, uh, was starting to expand in a lot of areas, doing a lot of cost-benefit analysis. Back then, uh, the conservatives, who had been out of power for like 20 years, came into power. And they were doing a deep-dive cost-benefit analysis into every liberal government program that there was. So we're gonna get them. <laughs> so 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 Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, which is basically Canada's equivalent to Fannie Mae, uh, developed this thing called Program Evaluation Division, which is really going back and seeing, do we need all these housing programs? Uh, and if if we do, how do we change them, make them more efficient? Or if we don't, how do we get rid of them? Mm -hmm. So I basically got hired in this 
call it this housing cost benefit analysis department for the federal government because Canada Mortgage and Housing, sort of a, it's called a crown corporation. It's like an arm of the government. I'm um, there for three years in Ottawa. So I, I went to, I grew up in Ottawa, went to University of Toronto uh, for five years, came back to Ottawa. Uh, my parents were begging me to come live with them. You know, I'm 23 years old and uh, they were, come, 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 come back to the house, Dave. And I said, uh, mom, dad, thanks. But uh, I think I'll just live downtown if that's okay. Uh, so I uh, went to CMHC, but it, I found it very stifling. I, I honest to God, uh, I don't know how my dad managed to be in government uh, yeah. for like 30 years. Yeah. And he was at the same job for 30 years. Who does that anymore? But I found after three years, the bureaucracy um, was stifling. It's and very different from the private sector. It, it's and, and you know what? I, I could see people that were the slackers of all slackers. Uh, like we're not even talking nine to fivers. We're talking 11 to twoers. I feel like even if they're not like you, that, when they get in there, they you, become like you, that. Well, because the union was so strong, the public sector union, you couldn't get rid of these people. And it was just hard to get anything done. Like we would come to decisions on these housing programs and you'd have to go through so many different layers of committee. And so I just found a, a lot of hard work. So you're like, when, I'm out of here. I need a more dynamic. Well, I, I actually going into my third year at Canada Mortgage and Housing, I started putting um, uh, feelers out on, on Bay Street, which is uh, the equivalent to Wall Street in Toronto. So I applied to all the banks. Now, back then, there's no internet. You know, you actually oh, had, yeah. to, you had to type, type <laughs> dear, who was, you know. And so when I had my CV, you know, you didn't email anything, right? And so I applied to the, the big six banks uh, in Toronto. Well, I guess one was in Montreal uh, at that point. And um, one bank got back to me. And, uh, and they came, they interviewed me and, uh, and I got the job, but I had applied, I see, I was basically, um, senior policy analyst for the federal government and they brought me on, this is the bank of Nova Scotia. So this is 1987, by the way, I started on October 19th, 19, 1987, the day of the crash. I remember this that, from us talking. I was yeah. just going to bring that up. So well, you're, it's so interesting that your but, foray into that was on such a, cat, such a cataclysmic day, you know? But I, I got to make this point because they bring me in as an intermediate economist. And I said, hey, but I'm senior. They said, yeah, in Ottawa, you're senior. <laughs> in Toronto, you're intermediate. Uh, intermediate economist at the Bank of Nova Scotia. And I was making... In Ottawa, I was making um, $32,000, and the Bank of Nova Scotia was going to bring me on for $28,000. I, I, my, my dad was my mentor. He was my rock. I said to him, reduce title and lower pay and to a higher cost city. And my dad said to me, sometimes in life, you've got to take a step back to take two steps forward. So where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? Not next year, the year after. Uh, and uh, I thought about that a lot because where was I going to be if I stayed in Ottawa, right? So I took the pay cut. I mean, who do that today? Took the pay cut, uh, took the, you know, the uh, the reduction in title. Uh, you know, within a few years, I, I made up for all that. Yeah. Uh, but that was a uh, that was that was a first learning lesson, and I still and I wrote about that about my dad. In life, you sometimes have to take a step backward to take two steps forward. One hundred percent right. It just means. Uh, you know, eliminating the noise. Yeah. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And investing in yourself, you had faith that yeah. that would that would pull you forward. Well, a hundred percent. Although I got to tell you something, I didn't know I didn't know what I was doing. Like I didn't. I was this. Uh, how, I've been out of school three years. At academic economist with housing, coming on being the financial economist. Uh, on uh, do you think it was helpful that you walked in into chaos? Because sometimes people are so crazy that they're not really paying attention. 
100%. things are disrupted. So you have an ability to sort of every, no one knows what that means now. So you kind of level the playing field. hundred percent. And I went into an economics department where my two bosses, the chief economist and the assistant chief economist, were truly like, they, they could tear apart the Fed and the bank canvas balance sheet like it's nobody's business. They were truly knew how to, and what I loved about it was there wasn't just ivory tower academic economics. They were tied, everything we did was tied in to the financial markets. So I remember my first day, my, well, my first day on the job was the crash. Uh, this Which is just crazy, by yeah. the way. I said, well, my, my boss said to me, uh, Aaron Gappel, he says, did you, did you read Barron's? I, what's Barron's? He says, never come to the office again without reading Barron's and without reading Alan Abelson's up, up and Down Wall Street. Don't never come in if you don't. Okay. Um, but yeah, that was um, but starting at, the, at Scotia. Yeah. Uh, and um, I'm walking around with Warren Jeston. He's the chief economist. Aaron Gamble, he's the assistant chief. And we're going, and I, I'm like, I'm the newbie. It's my first day on the job. And I don't know how many pairs of underwear that I brought with me that day, but it wasn't enough. <laughs> but I'm just standing by on the wall and we're going to office. We're going to the whole treasury department, but then we're going all the way up to the CEO. Okay. Uh, and all the senior all day long. And I'm following these two guys along and they had the charts showing that this was a liquidity event. This is not a fundamental event. Uh, They're and making their case. Making their case. There's no recession coming out of this. And you want to start adding to risk almost immediately. The Fed's Which going is to flood this. Is a, amazing. It was, right, it was the right call. Well, I learned the difference between a solvency crisis and an economic crisis and a fundamental crisis and something that's more of a liquidity crisis. And um, and having the courage to stand by your forecast and conviction because it could not have been easy delivering that message in that moment well, okay. of abject fear. It, abs absolutely right. In, in, in any event, they, they were right. But the senior management at the Bank of Nova Scotia thought there was going to be a recession. And within a month, uh, they sliced the research budget at the bank by half, including economics. So my boss, my direct boss is Aaron, Aaron Gamble, and he comes to me and he says, hide under your desk today in your office. Don't come out. And I think I did. I think I actually hid under the desk all day long. Um, like the George Costanza bed from Seinfeld. Half the up. department got fired. Oh dear. Oh, and they were, I just started, I was there basically a month and half and people who've been there 20, 30 years and they were tears. And, um, I wasn't like. The uh, fact you were paid so little probably saved your job, well, by the way. You know, the, the, well, the thing is that at the same time, uh, the person who was mentoring me, the person whose job I took over, Monica Smith, she got a job offer at another bank at the Royal Bank. Mm -hmm. And she was supposed to tutor me along for the first six months. So next thing you know, I'm also doing the morning meetings. I'm having to do stuff that I wasn't supposed to do for at least six months. And I was just thrown, you know, into from the fire. The, in, in, into the fire. And it's like Aaron said to me, it's going to be time sink or swim for you. Yeah. And your workload is going to go up now that we're. But I remember there used to be this bar called the Louisiana Purchase, uh, not just underneath in the uh, underground uh, shopping area. If you've been to Toronto, there's this. this just incredible uh, miles of like underground shopping Where you're malls high and bars. In the winter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, it was uh, went to Louisiana and, and, and they had a party there, and and everybody's hugging each other. I just started right, and every and it was a goodbye party for like like ten people that got let go. And I said to myself, self, that is never going to happen to you. Uh -huh. I, if I if my boss ever fires me. It, he's going to have to make it feel like he's amputating his right his right arm. So I made sure. So, but basically, I was. But at the same time, this is all happening, and I'm freaking out. I come into like a crash. I come into like this department just got decimated, and my mentor Monica. Yeah, you got to fake it till you make it now. And I'm there, and I'm there thinking, um, wow. And 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 I uh, I worked my tail off. Now the thing is that I had a very public sector academic writing style wasn't bad it was just not made for a wall street or bay street audience so i'm writing so, so I'm, I'm doing all, all my writing that i'm supposed to do and every time i'm getting it back from one of my two bosses red axes everywhere rewritten arrows everywhere this went on for weeks my stuff was being rewritten like it was nobody's business and once again i am like freaking out so i said to myself once again because i talk to myself a lot and uh you said self. I, <laughs> self so i actually told my friends don't bother me for the next three weekends i'm not going out drinking i'm not going out partying 
Uh, Which is a lot for Canadian hockey players to say. Well, you know, I was was a a hockey player wannabe. uh, (laughs) I I basically uh, got on my little Honda Accord, drove to the office on early on a Saturday morning. And uh, I think I double parked because I remember I I got a ticket. Uh, But it was worth it. I went upstairs and I photocopied everything that Aaron Gamble and Warren Justin, the two Mm -hmm. guys heading there... I photocopied everything they had done for the previous three years. I went down with 15 boxes of stuff. Oh, my goodness. This is the day's photocopy machines. I mean, it, you, you know. You I probably printed, heard you were robbing the place. I printed, <laughs> I, 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 and, and, and for three weekends, I sat there in my apartment, and I read, and I read, and I said, I am going to get into their brain. Come hell or high water, I'm getting into, I'm going to figure out what makes these two guys tick? You know why? Because I want to keep my job. Yeah. So it's like studying for Hollywood. I part. am. I'm. I'm. So I, I'm. I'm reading and reading and reading and reading, and then there's this one day I wrote my usual report, and there it is. I went to do some some meetings, come back, and it's sitting on my desk, and there's not a red mark on it, so I'm really confused. And I don't know why there's no red mark on it. So I go to Aaron's office. Here's my direct report. He's not there. Uh, he went out somewhere. But Warren Justin, the chief economist, is in his office. So I sort of meekly go up and I knock on Warren's door and I go, Warren. He goes, yeah. So I'm at the right by his door and he's sitting at his big old desk. I said, Warren, uh, uh, I, 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 I thought I gave this to Aaron for you and Aaron to proof. Uh, and it's sitting on my desk and there's no, there's no mark on it. And I could see Warren and we're friends today. Although, you know, it's quite a bit of an age difference, but he's trying hard not to smirk. And he says, Dave, you finally get it. No. So I went out that night with my friends (laughs) on a bender to end all benders. (laughs) You have no clue. And, uh, the alarm gets me up. Uh, I, I realize I'm going to be late for the morning meetings and I run and, you know, take a really quick shower. I think I use soap. Can't remember. And, and I, and I get dressed and I head downtown on the subway because I got the morning meetings to do. I'm sitting on the subway. I am so hungover. I don't even think I was hungover. I think I was still, still slightly, drunk. Yeah. I look down on my shoes and uh, two different shoes. Not just two different shoes, but remember in the 80s? No, I don't think you'd remember. You were like, you know. I remember. I don't think, so in any event, one shoe had tassels <laughs> and one didn't. So you know what I'm saying? This is it's not noticeable. Gonna, this is not going to pass. So um, in any event, one of the junior, junior economists, more junior to me, I could see, because I, I, I got to do the morning Give me your meetings. shoes. No, well, nobody was in the office because the morning meetings were early. Yeah. I'm the only one there, but I see. It's like uh, it's like an oasis in the desert. Uh, this guy, uh, his name was Mark Pavin. He uh, got a pair of shoes <laughs> by his desk, but he was like a I'm a I'm a size like ten. He's a size nine. So I got to fit into his, his shoes, and I'll <laughs> I'll I'll send him an apology later. But I put on his shoes, but like my toes are like curling. So I'm there thinking, this is going to be really rough because not only am I really hungover and my really... eyes are half open, but like I'm squinting because I my, my feet, my toes are in pain. So anyway, uh, did the meetings, uh, put the shoes on, got through it. And that was a, uh, and I've written about this, that, that day of the no red mark. It was like the day of uh, of Mr. Hyba in, in grade 10. Yeah. It's like, it was like. Open the an, next door. Well, it was like an aha moment. But then all of a sudden, you know what happens? Well, this is what it does, right? How you shift from a total lack of self-confidence to then having self-confidence. Yeah. And then and then it just. Builds on it from it just, there. It just, it just builds the momentum. So I actually was the first economist on Bay Street to make it to senior economist before 30. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. 
Amazing but, for a, a guy who started out. So I'm going to pick up on and talk, and we're going to dive into your trades now with a sort of understanding. And it's interesting you said that's never going to happen to me on those layoffs because your first trade is one of your best. I think these are in chronological order. That was starting your own newsletter in 1998 when you were at Bank of Montreal. So you obviously moved. You moved your way up. You're confident, doing well. You have a great reputation. So what's happening at this point? You're in Bank of Montreal. What what, what sparked that trade? Well, so, so going to the Bank of Montreal was basically, I could see after being at the Bank of Nova Scotia for, um, you know, seven, eight years that, you know, Aaron and Warren weren't going anywhere. And I was starting to bump up against where Aaron was, but there was no room for me uh, to be promoted to where I wanted to be. So out of the blue, uh, I got called by a headhunter and, um, and from the Bank of Montreal. And uh, I, threw, I was going to be the number two person in their economics department, which is what I wanted. And it was actually, monetarily, was going to be a, a lot more lucrative too. So money talks. And uh, after being at Scotia for seven, eight years, uh, I, I went to uh, went to Bank of Montreal. And uh, I'm there for 1998. I guess I, I was already there four years. But there was a new, new management came in um, at the Bank of Montreal. And one of the guys who was heading up, uh, like the whole Treasury Department, was a guy named Bill Down, who ultimately became the CEO of the Bank of Montreal. Um, years later. So what happened was that I used to do the morning meetings again, uh, like I did when I was at Scotia, I used to split them with Aaron Gamble, but I did most of them when I was at BMO. And so with the, with the, with the traders and the sales guys and this guy, Bill Down, who is now heading up the whole treasury group, sees me at a, at a client event and we're at one of the hotels and uh, he finds me where you usually find me at around 10.30 at these things, which is at the bar. Uh, <laughs> I, I was guessing the bar until you said 10.30. Having but. a double single malt. Um, and uh, and Bill Down comes up to me, and he's a very senior guy. He's probably like the f- number four guy at that point at the bank. He says, Dave, I'm meeting to talk to you. He says, um, I, uh, I've been watching you at the morning meetings the past little while, and uh, I don't want to take this the wrong way because everybody loves your morning meetings, but you speak really fast and then becomes uh, a game of broken telephone. What did Rosie say? What did Rosie say again? What did Rosie say, say again? So he says, I have a great idea for you. He says, I want you to start your own newsletter every morning. I want you to get your thoughts from these morning meetings down on paper, blast it out. And he says, in fact, we'll market the you know what out of it and, uh, and, and we'll send it off to clients as well hmm. and off to the media. Uh, but he says, first things first, which is to get your thoughts down on paper every single morning. Now, the thing is that I pushed back on that. Like, uh, I, you know. Because that's it, work. Well, it's not that. It's like, um, uh, I mean, it's it's a bad reason, but it's something I learned from, which was, what if it fails? Right. You're, it's, it's, you're, it's not just said. It's, it's like a record what, of it. Yeah, yeah. Like, what if it flops? What if it's a flop? I don't want to be a flopper. So, um, so you got a lot of fear. There or trepidation. Was, yeah, you know, f- there was there was fear and the fear of failure, which is a lousy excuse not to undertake a, a new endeavor. Um, because but once so many people well, fail- struggle with. Yeah, well, I, I you know what the most successful people I met had a lot of failures, and uh, those were learning lessons. Mm-hmm. And then you don't really know what success is until you've had those. But. Um, I was nervous, but how can I say no? The guy was going to be the future CEO. He was technically my boss's boss's he boss's sort boss. Sort of telling you to I, do it. <laughs> I, I, I said to him, "Well, the thing is that the, my, the chief economist at the time, my boss was Sherry Cooper." And oh yeah, was, I've, I've, inter- I've interviewed yeah. her often. Right. Well, she and she was a big name. Yeah. Big name back then on Bay Street, and I said, "I don't think that Sherry's going to go for this." He says, "Well, you, you leave Sherry to me." So uh, I started this newsletter, and at that point, it was called uh, Rosie's Tidbits. And it went viral. The next thing you know, the next thing you know, the sales desk is taking me out to see institutional clients. That never happened before. Uh, and uh, I'm in the Globe and Mail. I'm in the National Post. Uh, I'm in, uh, uh, you know, I'm getting TV interviews. And it created, shall we say, some tension. 
with Sherry mm. and myself, okay? Uh, because what happened was that because of the notoriety, um, the Brendan Woods survey, which is like the investor's intelligence on uh, Wall Street. Um, so I outranked Sherry in my last year there in 1999. So uh, like I said, it created quite a bit of friction. The one thing you never want to do is outrank your boss. No, that's but a problem. But the thing is that, and, and, and I, I could sort of see, like I said to Bill Down, Sherry's not going to go for it. You leave Sherry to me, he says. But the thing is, it took off. Yeah. And I'm doing all these institutional meetings and uh, getting presence in the media because, let's face it, you know, if you're in the media. Did it go to the, your head? No, never did. No. No, never did. Media attention like that, especially it, quickly, can be can be a beast. It never, uh, even those years at Merrill, uh, and it's only because, I, I got to say, Maggie, my... Uh, I mean, the biggest up trade, not the biggest, one of the biggest up trades that I had in my life, I didn't even have a choice. Mm. And it was my parents. Mm. So um, I, I sort of feel badly, I think, for kids today, maybe even my own kids. Although I grew up with it. I'm talking about being raised by Depression era parents with such a strong value system. Mm. Um, so uh, I had that. No, no, I, I was. There was never a chance I was ever going to let anything get anything get to my head, but um, it, all the notoriety. Remember, this was before I even went to Merrill. Okay, I was well known in Canada, but people in the states didn't know who I was. Um, but even then, even then, even I started getting ranked in the yeah. surveys. I, I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I think it's interesting because you can, with that background, it's possible to have great confidence without the ego mania that comes with it. Sometimes people aren't able to separate it, but if you have a good value and good grounding, you can get the confidence from success, but without buying into the, you know, drinking your own Kool-Aid basically, which well, is probably really, really important. I think that um, humility mm. is uh, something that you have to ingrain in somebody. And my parents ingrained it in me my entire life yeah. and, and, and and all my siblings too. I'll agree with you that it's a scarce resource these days. Yeah. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, you have this big personality on TV and he's yeah. got this ooh, sharp elbows and he's this big bad bear. But but 100%, um, uh, humility was something that uh, I was taught at a young age. So what do you think you learned from starting that that newsletter? What did what did you learn from that trade, that positive trade? Well, I you know, it was it was just basically symbolized what I love to do, what my passion is. And I have this guy who's my boss's boss's boss telling me, I want you to do this. Now, yeah, I, I was you know, what I learned is that, you know, don't fear failure. You know, uh, it's extra work, 100%. It is extra work. Doing that daily is like an extra job. Uh, but if you like I it, it doesn't it. feel it's, like it's work. not just like it's basically, I don't know, a musician picking up the trumpet, you know, or, or just going on and sitting down playing the piano. It's, it's, it's like that to me. Uh, and so I, lo I, I realized. And again, it comes down to when you start getting self-confidence and, you know, uh, how that just builds on itself. Mm -hmm. But the, you know, it, it, I realized there was more than just the accolades and the attention, but I realized this daily note is making a lot of difference. Yeah, it's a, cre it's a, a creative people. process that's yeah. having positive impact, but, right? But, you know, um, I, I, I just absolutely, I, I love doing it. And I don't even consider it to be work. Uh, so like it's just, extension yeah, of yourself. It, it, that's exactly hundred yeah. percent. That's yeah. exactly how, how I look at it. So it gave me an opportunity to do mandated on a daily basis. What does I love to do? What do I love to do? I love to research. I love to write. I love to analyze data and title into the markets, um, and sort of think outside the box. Mm. So it gave me that opportunity to do it every single day. And the beautiful, beautiful thing about doing something like this every single day you know, if I get it wrong on Monday, all right, Tuesday's around the corner. <laughs> that's what, that's the other <laughs> lesson of failure, which is funny for somebody who had to go and photocopy 15 boxes to figure <laughs> out your writing voice. So your second trade is one of your worst. So I think we're going to fast forward to you left Canada and joined Merrill Lynch. Um, 
and you'll tell us a little bit about that. But, but this is an interesting, this is real estate. This is not exercising the option to buy the condo that Merrill rented for you in 2002. So sort of set the scene for us. Are you in New York? Yeah. Or? Well, so um, it's it's interesting that, um, so my wife and kids, I have three young boys, three, six, and nine. And uh, out of the blue, I get this call. Well, I, I've got to say that I, I get this call from Bob McCann, who's one of the top guys at Merrill, uh, and this is back in August. And I get a call, and he says to me, and I'm in, I'm in Toronto. I'm, so I'm, at that point, the chief economist and strategist for Merrill Lynch Canada. So I'm like Merrill's ambassador uh, in Canada. Uh, and he calls Which me- Which is a great gift. Yeah, absolutely. And he calls me up, and he says, would you ever consider moving to New York? This is in August of 2002. I said, well, for, for which job? He says, never mind which job. Would you ever consider moving to New York? I said, sure. He says, that's all I want to hear. <laughs> so this is like uh, Thanksgiving week. This is in November. And uh, what happened was that, and this is when, remember, Stan O'Neill came in, replaced Dave Komansky, and they did, once again, a just bloodletting of research. The research budget gets cut again in the wake of um, uh, the tech wreck. <laughs> And all the senior leaders on every single research team gets Clean asked, sweep. including my uh, uh, predecessor, uh, uh, Bruce Steinberg. So, and he, the email goes out from HR that all these people are getting axed. And Bruce Steinberg's the first one because he was by far the biggest name. So the email just goes out. I'm at my desk in Toronto, okay? And I, by the way, I've got a lunch. It was, a, it was I got a lunch date with my parents who were in town. And this is about a, a, a 11.45. And as soon as I'm looking at the email, my phone starts to ring. And it's a New York number. And I'm looking at the screen. I'm looking at the phone, <laughs> looking at the screen. I'm looking at the phone. Did you think I pick up the phone fired? and it's Bob McCann. Did yeah. you think you were getting fired? No. Oh. No, I was just my, no, I was just, uh, this is just happened so quickly. You're but processing. Bob McCann says, do you remember the conversation we had in August? And I go, you meant that job? <laughs> That's the job you meant? So anyway, well, of course they had to do their due diligence and, um, they, they brought me in, I was for it to be, quotes, interviewed, but they, they were watching me, so here's the thing. I didn't find this out for a couple of years. Uh, Patrick Brady, who headed up the equity sales and trading desk in New York, told me this, that months earlier, before I got that call in August from Bob McCann, he's walking down the equity sales and trading desk in uh, New York, and, uh, and, and, and so at that point, it was called Morning Market Memo because I love alliteration. So it wasn't Rosie's Tidbits anymore. Couldn't call it that at Merrill. He says, what? It says Canada? Morning. You're reading a Canada guy? So Patrick Brady says, well, this guy writes about everything. So yeah, he's, he's a must read for us. So that was when he, I got on his radar. So the bottom line is that um, my wife and kids, I didn't get into my parents, by the way, sort of an hour late. Uh, for the lunch, and they're sitting there. When what is but, happening? Uh, yeah, the, well, at that point, you know, they didn't have any cell phone. I, 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 ran, I actually had phoned up the restaurant to say, "Tell you see these people, they look like this," and uh, tell them that you know. But when I told them the news about the what's happening, that I got this job offer to be chief economist, I, I'll never forget. They were sitting beside each other. They were just beaming. They were just absolutely beaming. That's so uh, nice. But I bought a bottle of champagne. I was going to say, I hope. And I came home. But the thing is that, but but Rachel was not thrilled, okay? Well, that's a big, that, yeah. I, it's funny because you didn't tell them, oh, I got this job as a job offer because I imagine there's the flip side of that now. You have well, a family of kids, well, we uprooting had, them. Yeah, there was, look, there was, um, look, we had a uh, some medical issues with mm. uh, the oldest, the oldest guy. Um, at that point, he was like nine years old and it was holding him back. He just became a doctor, by the way. But there was some audio processing and he was going to see a specialist. And um, Rachel did not want to break up his equilibrium, yeah. right? So um, and was didn't, didn't want to go find another specialist for him. It took us long enough to find somebody mm -hmm. who could work him through his issues, which, which they did. So um, I, I said, well, if you're not coming down to New York, I'm, I'm just going to stay in Toronto. So I told I told McCann, uh, my wife and kids aren't coming down. So uh, I, 
So, but he thought I was holding out for more money. So he ponied up more money. Then he flies oh in a couple of the head honchos from North America. And they say to me, look, they say, we know that your wife and kids are moving down. Here's what we're going to do for you. Uh, we'll fly you back to Toronto whenever you want on our dime. And we're going to give you free uh, a, uh, a one-bedroom uh, condo down in Battery Park City uh, on South End Avenue. So... So Rachel said, well, look, they obviously want you to take the job. So you got to take the job. And, uh, uh, you know, because you're going to be marginalized if you're here and you'll be a laughing stock. Yeah. So it's either basically find another job on Bay Street or take that job. But we're not, you, you, you know, they're going to pay you to come back. Um, Rachel did say, uh, it, give it two years. In two years, come back and monetize your Wall Street experience on right. Bay Street. So I, I came back seven years later. <laughs> So she says, what happened at two years? A seven. I said, I told you, Rachel, I was never good at math. Okay? <laughs> so anyway, what happens is that they, 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 I got this uh, condo, but I had an option to buy it. And at that point, Battery Park City, we just had 9-11. Yeah. Everybody had cleared out. Asbestos everywhere. It oh was my crazy. God. Yeah. So I could have bought this thing for like 400000 Oh my goodness. It's like two million bucks today. So I had an option to buy. I had an option to buy. A five-bagger. The lesson. The lesson is real estate in New York City. Never say no. Plus, I'd I'd have a pied of terror. Exactly. Instead of selling out for a hotel in Midtown. Exactly. Which which your adult children would love now. So that's so fun. But it's fun to hear the backstory about Merrill Lynch. So your third trade is one of your worst. And this is interesting. This is neglecting my economics team when I was at Merrill. So what do you mean by that? What I mean by that... And this comes down to how you wanted to find leadership. Mm. Um, so I knew that. Uh, so I, I was a, I was a what you would say on Wall Street as a managing producer. Okay, I had an economics team that I'm managing, but I'm producing and otherwise trying to generate revenue for the firm. Mm. And a lot of that also means getting ranked in II. Mm. Getting ranked in II, top three, all star, brings in a ton of investment banking revenue. And plus gives the firm tremendous bagging, uh, bragging rights. And so this is, and of course, the chief economist. I mean, there was me really, the me and Rich Bernstein, right, on the strategy side. We were the two uh, macro voices. So to get ranked uh, means you have to get out there. Uh, and uh, I, I, I figured out early on, like, why did my predecessor, um, why, why, why did he face the knife? Uh, a lot of it, as I found out ex post, was because he was not exactly the friendliest person to the sales force. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to get ranked on Wall Street as an analyst or strategist or economist, you have to be there for the sales force. And the sales force is global because most of the time, the portfolio managers, CIOs that vote for you in II, in investors' intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. That's an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that they will actually give to the salespeople, here's my votes. For Merrill yeah. Research, you allocate who you want to do it to. So I realized that the most important thing is availability, just being available. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was available 24-7 uh, to the global sales force. So to be friendly, to be accessible, uh, to be dependable, uh, no, not to hide behind your bad calls, but confront them and just be nice to the clients, answer their questions. Uh, so... But that takes a, a lot of time. And I think I mean, that's, a, I just it, want to say, that's an understatement. Yeah. In the investment banking world, being available to a global sales well, force at Merrill and their clients it, is an extraordinary it, burden. It was like, it was, it was like the derivative desk and the FX desk and the fixed income no, it's desk. it's a lot. The commodity desk the, yeah. and the equity desk. So yeah, so, and you had to travel. So I was traveling. It was just as well that uh, oh, I wasn't would, back in Toronto. I was living out of a suitcase and mm-hmm. out of my... Uh, uh, out of my unit in um, in Battery Park City, I, be, I was traveling all the time. There are going to be a lot of investment bankers or Tra- ex investment bankers listening to this, nodding their head. They yeah. know that life. And, and it, look, it was tiring, but a lot of it was fun, right? And they all knew that the wife and kids were in Toronto. Well, that's it. You didn't have so that. Pressure. I got marketed, but the thing is that I've been to every great restaurant. Did you gain thousand pounds? Uh, you know, probably even more. It was. Uh, it, it, it was. It, it was. It was incredible. I remember the first time. I think I was at. Uh, it was either Il Molino or Zbabo, okay? And uh, I think it was the uh, the equity desk uh, rents out uh, the cellar in the basement. Uh, 
and they say so they have a they have a, a wine expert they got like uh barolos brunellos sangiovese big tuscan this is when you got, could do that by the way you can't do any of this well, stuff this anymore is, yeah. in investment banking yeah. all the all the well, roles the, changed yeah but. so anyway and they had the cheese so they had a sommelier and they had a cheese expert <sighs> different grades of parmesan so cheese. good they say rosenberg they say so here's the deal you speak for maybe 15 minutes no acronyms no gdp no ism Keep it high level, keep it funny, keep it erudite. So, okay, I do my gig. There's like eight of us, you know, in the cellar, and I'm finished. And then they have the Italian, uh, you know, talking about, uh, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the 1994 uh, vintage tig, from yeah. yeah, the TIG that we're drinking. I'm there. I'm there. I, I, I'm swirling my Brunello, going. This is shit. The best. And they, they pay us for this. They pay me for this too. This is rather incredible. But the thing is that. It took me, the thing is that I, when, when I figured out, uh, so I got, after my second year, I got ranked as a runner-up, which is fourth in II. Mm. And I figured, oh my God, I'm going to get there. And so by my third year, I was starting to get ranked. And that's, there's, there's nothing else that mattered. So, but it meant I, I was never around for my team because I'm traveling. Like a vote from a portfolio manager in Seattle or San Francisco or Atlanta is as important as anyone from Manhattan. So I'm all over the place. Don't forget, back then, it was like mezzanine CDOs leveraged over 10 times. It was, it was like, I felt like Henry Hill and the Goodfellas, you know? But um, I was out all the time. And, and of course, I was doing, I'd go back to my hotel room and I would do the daily. Right, and I would find different times. I'd be in the black car, and I would on my on my BlackBerry, and I'd be banging the stuff out to my team. But I never had time for my team. Never had time for my team, and um, I could tell it was a source of frustration for them. Um, and what's interesting is that every year when I got paid my bonus uh, from the head of research, it was a gold star every year. There was not one year where they did not blow me away in terms of compensation and accolades and blah, 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 blah. And, um, but every year when I got my sort of 360 from my team, so every manager got graded by their team. It was anonymous, okay? And, um, and you can write in comments. I don't think there was a year, I was in New York for seven years, okay, with Merrill. Not one year I scored better than like a three out of 10 mm. as a manager. Mm. And the comments, never here, never mm. around. And so I was accessible to the clients as I was chasing II votes. And uh, and and I was failing with my own team. So I said uh, to Candace, uh, who's still head of Merrill Research today, I said, uh, my last year, this is back in 09. I said, you, you never talk about these horrible grades I get from my team. Like this year was like, I think my best year was four to 10. Mm. And she says... You keep on doing what you're doing on the production side. I don't care if they give you a zero. Oh, wow. Well, and so by that, to this day, like we're talking about mm. it. So, um, Because you had been the beneficiary of people who mentored you and looked after you and spent I time mentored, with you. I mentored nobody. Uh, I mentored nobody. Uh, and it wasn't that I was being narcissistic. It wasn't about so that. the way the system was it set was up. Neglect, it was neglect. Well... Uh, you know, I don't. You know. wouldn't have been there for seven no, years if you paid attention well, to your team, I, arguably. And I, I look at my friend Rich Bernstein, right? I, and look, and it's Savita took over for him, and he trained Savita, mm. and she's now been the chief strategist. Um, you know, I when I left Merrill in '09, they didn't have someone to slip up to the plate. Yeah. Like they end up at, at hiring, uh, yeah, Ethan Harris from. Would uh, you have done? Would you have done it over again if you could have? Would you have done it differently? Uh, I would have, I, I would have because, you know, I, I would have taken a lot of hard thinking uh, about how to make it work. Uh, and I think that I didn't give it enough thought. But could you, you think you could have gotten those rankings and looked after your team? Was it possible to it do that? possible, definitely, because other people have done it. Mm. Um, I was just talking to somebody here at the conference who brought in Francisco Blanche to head mm -hmm. up the commodity you know, he now is the head commodity person at uh, commodity research at, at Merrill. So it can be done. Rich Bernstein did it. Mm. But you see, the thing is that I, I am a, um, I'm a, a nose of the grindstone, uh, really tenacious uh, son of a you-know-what. Mm. So, uh, and once I saw, like, the thing is that um, 
the the II vote. I mean, that's like the holy became, grail. Yeah. And so and so the thing is that I knew, but I see I knew how to do it. Like I knew how to. I mean, don't forget, I was getting ranked with the with the most horrible view, like Armageddon. You know, would you say and, you were blinded and, by ambition? No, no, it wasn't about blinded by ambition. It wasn't that at all. It blinded was, by the the desire to achieve results. Yes, it's basically when you, the only person you trust mm. is yourself. Now, I did. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of humility in that statement. However, I knew that I needed the team to be there. We had a lot of maintenance and housekeeping stuff that had to be done. And don't forget, I had to use them. Uh, when I was on the road, especially, I need data. I need data. I need this. I so, um, but I didn't. I, I, I guess that, you know, I, 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 I didn't put enough faith and trust in them. Yeah. And uh, and that yeah, that was a that was a huge flaw. So you know, when you asked about some of the down trades, yeah. that was a that's something I should have done a lot better. So and and understanding it, realizing it, owning it. Yeah. Uh, has held me in a lot better stead as I went and started my own business. Because, you know, I didn't, I was never bad to my staff. I was never mean to them. You were just neglectful. I, I, the ones, the, I was neglectful. Exactly yeah. right. And yeah. maybe, maybe that's worse. They, they, they really missed me. We never had team meetings. You know, when I needed them, I'd email them or I'd call them. I, I only like if I needed you, you'll hear from me. Yeah. And so and so I was really so that, more like, that level of self-reliance, I think a lot of people are gonna really listen to this. That level of self-reliance is is ultimately can undo you. It seems like such a good idea at the time, but it, it created more work for myself. Yeah. But I was I was I was a I was a beast and wasn't living on more than four hours sleep. I think night. we all know somebody like this. Some people will recognize themselves yeah. in this, but I think we've all worked but, with or know someone like this. But, but I, you know, my responsibility. But then again, it was all about it was all about the dollar, all about the mm -hmm. dollar. Like you know, basically, if as long as you keep on producing and bringing in the commission revenues, and you were you were I, being I, told that as well. You know, I, you're, you're getting positively reinforced for that. So I wasn't. Yeah, uh, but anyway, it was. Do you think really, investment was, banking culture has changed? You think it's still like that? I, well, because I've been out of it for so long. Um, I think that it is changing. I think it is changing um, from what I'm hearing, mm. um, you know, but you know, from what level it's a uh, look, it, it's a, I think, I think at a big institution, it's a, it's a tough grind. In my case, it was a matter of, I did sacrifice my team at the holy altar of uh, the II vote. And it wasn't just the II vote. It was basically, you got graded on commission revenues from accounts Um you know, the, the, the wealth management team did their own deep dive every single year. The number of report cards that you got in someone in my position, the number of report cards you got externally, internally was crazy. And so you always measured your success by uh, not just how people thought of you internally and externally, but were they paying for you? Mm. And the thing is that you reach a certain point, I did, where I realized I get it. I know how to, you know, I get it. You I know, know how to play the game. Well, it wasn't, I just, I know how to make these people happy. I know how to make the sales force happy. I know how to make the clients happy. I just knew how to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I should have basically, considering the amount of time I was there, given more responsibility to my team. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would have made Managing's me better off. hard work. It's hard work. Well, Managing. it depends. Yeah. Well, it takes more effort. It takes, uh, it takes effort, takes time, and it takes, uh, you got to have trust in your team and, and you've got to get out of this mentality, which I had, I had this mentality, uh, right or wrong that, uh, I just got to do it myself. Yeah. I just got to, they, they, and, and that's, um, uh, you know, that I, I so I would have done it differently. Yeah. I would have done it differently. I would have given them more responsibility and, uh, uh, I would have liked to have been more of a mentor to them. Uh, I am happy that a lot of them over time have gotten other really great jobs that's good. Uh, so that was a uh, that was one of the downdrafts. So your fourth one is another one of your best, and that is leaving New York to go back to Toronto. Yeah. Well, look, by so this is by two thousand and nine. I left in 02, came back in 09. Um, you know the, uh, the little funny quip about the way I was told you I was bad at <laughs> math, honey. Did uh, you know that only lasted so long? Short shelf life. The kids. 
in particular, you know, three boys. And at that point, so from three, six, and nine, you know, they're now, you know, nine, 12, and 16. And uh, it was getting very, very hard uh, mm -hmm. on Rachel. And I was gone at that point, long absences, because I was going on mega road trips to Asia and to Europe. And, um, and then coming back and being a weekend dad. And sometimes it was, I'd be skipping a weekend. And you're exhausted as well. And, and the, but the boys were starting to get into their high school teenage years and there's no dad. Mm. And uh, I still remember uh, my middle guy, Jacob, who now doubles as my uh, COO. Yes, we've seen him. <laughs> yeah, he, he'd be, it'd be a Sunday night. I'd be putting him to bed and he'd say, dad, are you going to New York tomorrow morning? And I go, yeah. And there'd be this guttural sigh. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I tear up sometimes just, uh, when I think back at it. So, but my family life, like it's, you know what, it's like I neglected my team mm -hmm. in the, in the chase for the I.I. vote and the chase for success. Um, but I had no balance in my life. I gave my team, that's what I mean. I gave my team, um, no time. Oh, but if you're a client, but then again, they're a paying client. But mm. then again, you have this responsibility because I was a manager. Um, but the same with my family. Like I neglected my family. I really did. And I didn't even really notice it so much because my head was in the clouds. Mm. Uh, I'd be, I mean, it'd be a Sunday afternoon and uh, we'd be out with friends. And uh, they'd be talking to me. And all I'd be thinking about was... Uh, I got to change my story for the morning meeting tomorrow. Oh, geez. I got to call, call Bob Chulo when I get home. Who, who, yeah. So that's you weren't all. even present. Were you I was, I was not present. So it wasn't blind ambition. Were you addicted to success? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and absolutely. Mm. So, um, so the reason why that's an uptrade, because most, most people would say, well, the uptrade had to be moving to New York. Okay. That was an uptrade, but this was actually in some ways, a bigger uptrade, and I'll tell you why. Firstly, I I forced myself to get a better balance in my life. I forced myself to actually get reacquainted with my family and be a dad in particular. Did you make and, this decision and, or and, did they make it be, for you? Were you given an ultimatum? Uh, no, I wasn't an ultimatum, but I, 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 I woke up and saw the reality. Um, you know, my, uh, you know, my the family life was, um, was deteriorating. Like, mm -hmm. I really did reach... Uh, a fork in the road, but I could see it. I could see it. Thank goodness. That, that, that it's not going to last. And so I did the Yogi Berra and uh, got to the fork of the road and I took it. But I, the thing is that I did not have balance in my life. It was, my life was all about Merrill Lynch. Mm. And uh, I, I couldn't distinguish, and to this day, because it's because I love what I do, um, my work became an addiction. And uh, it's one of these things where there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Remember I said before, I love what I do. Mm. But, you know, when you think about life, there's a balance to everything. Like all of nature is about balance. Mm -hmm. I, and, and for that period, I really did not have any balance whatsoever. And uh, I abandoned my family and I did. And it created a lot of hardship. And... Um, you know, my team wasn't my family, but I abandoned them too. I was really a lone wolf. Mm. Uh, they, they say I was a bear. I was a lone wolf. I come back and my family life turns around dramatically. And it was, it was just great. And I had a lot of job offers. Uh, Meryl said, just, just do this job out of Toronto. You can work out of Toronto. I said, you can't do this job out of Toronto. You got to be in New York. You got to be in New York for this job. I was not going to set up myself up for failure. Okay? Smart, smart of you to resist that. Not, oh yeah. I was not going to, they offered me a, a ton more money and, um, but it just didn't sound right. Plus I know myself, I know I'd be sucked back into the vortex, mm -hmm. all the travel. Cause you got to, I mean, the thing is that that's just, you know, it's, uh, it's like, uh, Al Pacino in uh, Godfather 3, you know, and they pulled me back. <laughs> I could see that scene. So I had a lot of offers from a lot of the big banks. And then out of the blue, I get this one from Gluskin Chef, which was the swanky uh, boutique mutual fund. Uh, and I thought, you know what? This sounds interesting because it wasn't going to be global travel. Uh, you know, most of their clients were Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, manageable. 
So I was going to be able to not have a job, a job that would not give me the excuse to say, well, I can't see my family. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's going to be the, give me the balance. I wanted that work-life balance. And I was pushing 50 at that point. So you do the math to figure out how, uh, how old I am. And I figured, you know what? Go on to the buy side. Go on to the buy side. That sounds really interesting to me um, because I've always been a big sell side economist, Scotia Bank, Bank of Montreal, Merrill Lynch. So I thought maybe you can teach this old dog new tricks and see what it's like on the other side. And I got to tell you something over and beyond reestablishing my family life and having more work balance, work life balance, because it wasn't nearly as crazy as, uh, as, uh, as Merrill was. Uh, but it was the ability as a economic seer to see firsthand how to formulate and uh, deliver a forecast that's meaningful to a portfolio manager mm-hmm. and to a CIO. Because, you know, you're at Merrill Lynch, chief economist. You think you got it all figured out. But, you know, you go to these boardrooms, faceless, lames, nameless faces, one boardroom, next boardroom, next boardroom, then airport, tarmac, airplane. Nah. But when you're there and you're sitting out there with the portfolio managers, and look, they ran fixed income money, they ran equity money, they had a long short fund, so they had an internal hedge fund. And I I got it. There was another eureka moment like about what's important is your base case scenario, but then what are all the other scenarios? And we talked about this in my session. But So actually, it was Ira Gluskin, who was one of the founders, at my first investment meeting when I portrayed my forecast back in 2009, he says, okay, Rosenberg, he says, so this is your base case forecast. What happens if you're wrong? Well, no one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be wrong. So he says, uh, so that was when he actually said, you don't have a plan B, you don't have a plan. Uh-huh. So I came back to the next meeting with scenarios and I attached probabilities. And I found out when I was going to the meetings, the investment meetings from there on end, it, I didn't, didn't have to change my base. My base case, say, on interest rates, I could have had 80% conviction. I didn't change anything else, but I went to 60% conviction. And let's say I switched scenario B to C and C to B and E to D and D to E. So I just changed the distribution curve of outcomes for these people. I didn't even change anything. Hmm. They'd be writing down furiously. So I, I realized that you're... Uh, you're really dealing with uh, probabilistic outcomes and, you know, what is the cost of being wrong benchmarked against the reward of being right across that continuum of all the forecasts. So I realized that uh, how big that was. So it was a great learning experience. And something else too is that when I was at Merrill, when I was at Merrill, uh, I always met the portfolio managers and the CIOs. Those are the people that voted. What do portfolio managers and CIOs do? They manage money for real people. Mm. I never met the real people. Yeah. If they ever had a thing with real people on high net worth, me and Rich Bernstein did these, a thousand people in the ballroom and the Pierre, and there'd be the two of us pontificating to this massive high net worth people. But you see, the beautiful thing about Gluskin Chef is I got to meet the people. Now, don't forget, these were well-heeled. I mean, they had a minimum of like, two or three million dollars and I got to meet entrepreneurs I got to meet entrepreneurs most of their clients were entrepreneurs and that's when we talked before about and a lot of them I learned from them failure success success failure I learned about how they're dealing with their kids and how they're ensuring that their kids don't get their head up in a mm-hmm. bubble um, so I learned a great deal and I'll say right now that talking to a lot of them especially my last couple of years um, it, it, it gave me a lot of um, faith and confidence that I could actually start my own business. Yeah, and it's so, amazing when you yeah. when you spend time with them that the the, the opportunity to 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 like to to meet the and also actually gave me my forecast became all of a sudden like the burden of responsibility when, when you're two or three degrees removed and you're in this ivory tower oh, yeah. on VZ Avenue and 
you know, and uh, yeah, now you see Manhattan, the impact of yeah, you. you see the impact of of your decisions. Yeah, and there's money on the line. It's amazing that you were able to have another chapter of learning at that stage in your life. Absolutely, absolutely. It was a, uh, you know, I would say that that's why I put that down there. Yeah. Uh, you know, because it was about. I mean, obviously, family ties, um, but it was. Um, a real, I learned more. I, 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 I say I learned more in the say 10, 11 years I was at Gluskin than I did in my previous 20 years combined. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and really how to be, I'm not going to say a better economist, uh, but taught me how to communicate in a different way, uh, and tell people form a decision tree it was more in, in how you formulate it wasn't about doing anything differently except how do you communicate your view uh and make it useful yeah. you know for the people that you're talking to uh so it's you know when you're sitting out there with portfolio managers every single day for 10 years uh it rubs off on you and i think it made me better at my craft Absolutely. well i'd certainly say that it's something we've all benefited from David, this was amazing. Thank you so much for being on My Life in Four Trades. Well, thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in engrave.io shop with the code RealVision.